Um, the reason we're going to go through this particular topic, which I guess you could call how a church and state are supposed to be arranged, is for obvious reasons. Um, there's a lot of strong opinions about these things out there, especially right now. And so I think what we're going to do in this class, above everything else, I'm not going to get too much into what America should be like or should be doing. This is not a political um, exercise here. Well, what we're going to do is look at what is the Lutheran um, view about church and state relations and how can we apply that to our own day and age and our own life as Christians. And when I say Lutheran, I do want to emphasize what my main concern, we might talk about American legalities like the Constitution and so forth. Um, a lot of the dialogue right now about how church and state should be lined up actually goes from the First Amendment. We say, well, the First Amendment says this, you're either intruding on it or you're not following it properly. The problem with that is the American Constitution is not actually the definitive statement for Christians about how we should be thinking about these things. As we'll see, it, uh, it remarkably lines up with several things we want to say. But what's the basis for our view on how church and state should relate? Obviously, Christ's words, right. Not um, any document, however good it was, in the Constitution. So this particular session, we're going to walk through a lot of the basic things the Bible says about these, kind of lay a framework. Next time, I actually want to look at what the confessions say, because the Lutheran view is the one that's in the Book of Concord, something we don't uh, look at too often. But it actually says some really important and surprising things that will go a long way to helping us make sense of what should be the third step in this class. What do we do with this information? Well, let me start off just by asking, getting a feel for the temperature in the room here. In your mind, what should be the uh, proper role between church and state here? Okay. I mean, you know, uh, and then the, the church has to stand up and be firm in what their beliefs are and why they believe it that way. Okay, so that's in a certain sense that uh, you're saying the church by and large should stay out of the state until and unless they're going against the word of God. Okay. What about the other way around? What about the state to the church? I'll just give you a very practical question to help form this. Um, last year, of course, we had mandates from the government about closing down worship services. I guess a good starting point is, is that within the scope of the authority of the state? Evidently it was. <laughs> Evidently it was. So that, and that's part of the question is it's not just the question of how should the church react to the state? Um, to what extent should we ever have anything to say to the state as the church, but also the other way around, to what extent can the state speak to the church, and is there a limit on that kind of thing? That's what we're going to work out here through, um, throughout this, and it's, like I said, I think we're going to come into some really important and uh, possibly surprising ideas about what Lutherans classically have taught and what it means for us as individual Christians on the one hand and as congregations and church bodies on the other. 
Uh, but let's just dive right in. Um, you each have a little sheet here. This is kind of an outline. We won't necessarily go through everything on this, um, certainly not verbatim. Um, we probably won't go through all of the scripture readings, but it will be uh, good to go through a few of these things. If I could have somebody look up um, 1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 6 for me, and then if I could have another person look up especially 1 Samuel 16, 12 through 13, and Isaiah 10, 5 through 7. Now, when we're starting with what the Bible says about the scope and the place for religious and secular authority, let's just start with the role of secular authority and lay out some basic principles that the Bible simply says about secular authority in virtually every instance. Um, we're not talking just Old Testaments or news. We're talking all over the board, across the map. These things are true. Somebody want to read 1 Corinthians 8 for me, whoever picked that one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and in whom we live. And there is but one Lord and Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. All right. So uh, Paul there is writing to the Corinthians. He's saying, although there are many, and notice it's in quotes, God and Lords, small g, small l, basically saying there's a lot of things that people look to for authority um, and for ordering their lives. Nevertheless, what do we look at as Christians? How many gods do we have? One. How many Lords over our lives do we have? One. Only God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We could go through tons of verses that illustrate this point, but the basic point here is that God is the one who is ruler over all things. I don't, this isn't surprising news to you, I'm sure. That doesn't mean just over the world in some grand abstract sense that he rules over nature and hurricanes and things like that. That's true. He is also Lord over every individual, including over every individual who has authority in this world. He is the Lord over America, over Russia, over Israel, over Babylon. Everyone answers to him because he is the one who sets the game, right? Pretty simple, but very important truth. Pagan or Christian, it does not matter. God is your God and you are accountable to him. Pretty straightforward stuff. And then let's dig deeper about earthly authority. Somebody want to read Isaiah 10, 5 through 7. One of you want to read that one. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger. In his hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me, to seize loot and snatch plunder, and to trample them down like mud in the street. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. Okay. Now, when it's saying Assyria, it's talking especially about the king of Assyria, who at this time is going in to conquer Israel. What does that verse seem to imply about the relationship between God and the king of Assyria? Where did the king of Assyria get the power to go and start conquering other countries? God. It calls Assyria the rod in God's hand. It calls Assyria, the king of Assyria, the glove on God's hand. 
In other words, God is saying, the king of Assyria is my tool, and I am using him to go into these nations, including Israel, and punish them, rob them, uh, destroy their goods, so on and so forth. So who raised up the king of Assyria? God. Now, is the king of Assyria, I guess, a, a good solid Jew? The answer is a big sounding no. He is a pagan. And yet God raises him up and rules through him. Now there's an important little note there in the last verse. Um, does God's purposes and will for the king of Assyria line up with the king of Assyria's own identification of himself? That is to say, does the king of Assyria think, I am the rod in the Lord's hand, I am punishing him on behalf of the true God? No, it overtly says, God says, he has very different intentions than me. And that's going to come around and bite him in the backside. But nevertheless, I am the one who raised them up. Somebody want to read 1 Samuel 16, 12 through 13. All right, so good old King David. Is he a good solid Jew? Yes. He is definitely a faithful person in God's, uh, of God's people. One of the most faithful. Who picked David to be king? God. God. Very directly in David's sense, he actually sent the prophet Samuel to go and pour oil over his head. By the way, who was the king before David? Do you happen to remember? That was Saul. Um, who picked Saul to be king? Hey, good answer. Um, and it turns out in the exact same way, God sent the prophet Samuel to go and anoint Saul as king. So on the one hand, you have obviously the people of Israel have a king, a ruler, an earthly government that God very directly picks and very directly sends to rule over the people. Clearly, the king of Israel is meant to be God's chosen instrument, right? I mean, that's pretty plainly obvious in the Old Testament. But what about those pagan kings? While they don't have prophets coming and anointing them, does it make it any less true that God is ultimately the one who has raised them up and chosen to use them for his purposes? It is still the fact. Pagan or Christian? Christian or atheist, Muslim, Jew, Buddhist, whoever the rulers are. Let's just hear what Romans 13 has to say in a very bold assertion. Um, verse first. We'll come back to this chapter quite a lot in the time ahead. Where Paul writes, and by the way, about the Roman government, is good old emperor of Rome a solid Christian man at this time? Probably not. In fact, um, to the ex he probably hasn't even heard of Christianity at this point. Jews to the Roman emperors are just kind of a thorn in your side you have to live with. Emperors are paying themselves as the high priests of the nation and even gods. And they expect people to honor them as gods. So that's who Paul's writing about. Not a good Christian faithful ruler, but here's what Paul writes. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, and here's the key point for right now, for there is no authority except that which God has established. 
the very idea that God is the one who runs the show means, therefore, that God is the one who also has allowed these people to come to power and, in fact, has given them the authority that they have. Any thoughts about that, first off? Let me ask you this. Why, it, why would it not be true today? Well, and this gets us to our very... Well, that, that actually anticipates the third biblical principle we'll come to in just a second. But uh, to answer your question simply, yes. This is a pr- thing that is true of all times and all places. If you think that was a mess... Think of King of Assyria, who literally liked to pave their roads with human skulls of the people they conquered because they realized this is a really good, effective method of making people not want to fight against us. These were not nice people. Horrors they did and suffer, and people suffered under them are just, we cannot even comprehend what it's like. And yet God says, that's my rod. <laughs> he's a bad rod, but he's still my rod. Now that, of course, immediately raises the question, well, King of Assyria was clearly bad. You've mentioned there are obviously things going on in the world that give Christians pause. We won't dive into those right now, but it makes you wonder, is it still true? Well, yes. But um, the third, I'll just re- say that right off the bat, that does not mean, therefore, that every earthly ruler is always and only doing exactly the will of God. It does not mean that um, the earthly authorities only exercise the authority that God actually gave them. Sometimes they try to amass more power, more authority, than is actually proper to them. Sometimes they get big heads like the king of Assyria and think that I am the one calling the shots. I'm coming to destroy kings, not God. Which is to say, earthly rule authority frequently will put in rebellion against God. So, frequently, earthly authority is in rebellion against God. Um, this isn't, shouldn't be surprising because what is every human being? A sinner. And what does it mean to be a sinner? At this basic level, it means somebody who rebels against the will of God, who ignores what they say, he says, doesn't fear, love, and trust God above all things. If every human being is a sinner, Jesus accepted, which is scripture very clearly teaches, it shouldn't be surprising to us that once human, sinful human beings come into earthly authority, they magically don't stop being sinners. They still act in ways that transgress the boundaries that God lays out for them in the same way that you and I transgress the boundaries that God laid out for us. Now, sometimes people look at this and they assume, well, if God raises it up, this shouldn't be true. And if this is true, then that earthly authority must not be being used by God. Well, let's back up and follow that logic through with parents. God raises up parents, right? Every single person who has a child, God has made a parent of that child. And the authority you exercise as a parent, you exercise on God's behalf. You are a tool in the hand of God to help raise that child, right? But scripture clearly teaches that. Does that mean, therefore, that because God has raised you up as a parent, you are a flawless parent? <laughs> if any of you are nodding, <laughs> I would invite you to a confession and absolution session here in my office after the Bible study. 
No, of course, we constantly drop the ball as parents. Sometimes, just owing to limitation, we know what's the right thing we do, we're trying our best to do the right thing, and sometimes we just beat our head against the wall, or we just give in to this little, I, I just can't deal with this right now. All kinds of reasons in good faith, as parents, we still drop the ball and fall into sin and rebellion, right? And there's also all times, let's be frank and honest, where we just overtly ignore what God tells us to do. And we're happy to do what we think is right because we just feel it's more important than what God tells us to do as parents. Does that mean you're no longer a parent? God has removed you from that office. You have violated the terms of the agreement. Therefore, God is no longer working with you. Kids can now, at the first time you break a promise, first time you're arbitrary in your rule, now ignore you completely. Sorry, you're not my parent anymore. <laughs> Just imagine the chaos. The same exact thing is true of earthly authority. Even though it constantly is in rebellion against God, I say frequently I should, instead of constantly, because there are times when I guess it's not overtly, but those are few and far between. Even though it constantly drops the ball, constantly exceeds its authority, constantly overtly rebels against God, that does not mean that it has fallen outside of God's sovereignty on the one hand, after all, God will hold them accountable for their failures. And it doesn't mean that God therefore withdraws any semblance of his authority from them. Which is a good thing. The world would fall apart if every time somebody sinned, they were no longer somebody we needed to take seriously as God's tool. Just to drive this home point, put this point home, this is true both of pagan, non-Christian, atheist, Hindu, Muslim authorities, as it is of Christian authorities. Somebody turn to Exodus 5-2, please, for me. Um, and somebody read um, 1 Kings 11-9 through 11. We'll just focus on those two here. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Okay, Pharaoh's talking. The good old famous Exodus. Moses comes and tells him, God tells you, O king of Egypt, by the way, who God has raised up as king of Egypt, to let his people go. And what is the Pharaoh's response? <laughs> I don't know this God. <laughs> Forget that. Again, from the very beginning of the Old Testament, the earthly authorities are in rebellion against God. Now move to Israel. Surely Israel, God's chosen people. This can't be true of. 1 Kings 11, 9 through 11. Pharaoh became angry when Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, that appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's commands. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your all right. So uh, when you're thinking of good kings in the Old Testament, top of the list, David, of course, and Solomon. And yet, is Solomon always a good king? He was a human. He was a sinner. And he went very much against the will of God. So it's important to say, just because you have a Christian on the throne of your kingdom, or for that matter, in our more modern bureaucratic democracy, even if we had every single elected member of this government, a firm, devoted Christian, heck, let's even say LCMS Lutheran and really put a good picture on it, would we therefore have a perfect earthly government? 
best there's ever been. <laughs> Maybe it would be, but that wouldn't even mean, but even if it was the best there has ever been, it would not mean, therefore, that Christians could not wake every mo- up every morning and say, our leaders are being faithless and sinful and oppressive because they are exceeding their authority, um, failing to do what God has given them to do, and just dropping the ball in countless ways. Because they're still always sinners. But that, that also raises one other thing. Um, we mentioned it in passing, but we'll also say, Saul, how did God respond to Solomon? He said, because you've done this, I'm going to come back and visit something upon you. God doesn't just raise up these earthly authorities and say, well, shucks, they're not doing what I said. Guess we'll just wait these guys out and maybe the next one will be better. No, God as the sovereign who raises up the earthly authorities is also the one who is king and lord of the authorities and therefore does and will make them answer for how they rule. When God gives you a calling, a vocation, a task, he holds you answerable to the task. And that is the same is true of earthly authority as any other task. It might not come around in some overt way where God confronts you like he does with Solomon and says, here's what I said, here's where you failed, here's what's going to happen. Sometimes it happens in a much more roundabout way where God brings your empire to fall. (laughs) Or countless other afflictions happen. Um, Or countless other rewards. There's no one-to-one correspondence here. And I want to be very clear here. Um, There is a certain group of Christians uh, trace their way back all the way to the Puritans, who believed that when the nation does good, God will, will clearly and unequivocally reward you with good things as a nation. When the nation does evil, God will break out the stick and punish you. Therefore, if there's a tornado, probably something was going wrong in your governing authorities or your life as citizens. If you have a good crop year, probably everybody was doing a good job. We don't want to make those straight lines. God is free to reward or punish as he sees fit. But he does promise that he will hold people to account. And he will bring earthly consequences to earthly failures to do his will. What those are, we don't necessarily know. Sometimes he defers it for generations. But the fact is, that's just how the scripture talks. That's the close of the commandments, in fact. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, and showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Um, Again, we don't want to draw straight lines between good deeds means no suffering, bad deeds means bad suffering. We just want to point out the fact, earthly authority is accountable to God, and God is not a wimpy king who just shrugs his shoulders, pats him on the head, and says, try to do better, guys. <laughs> Make sense? Okay. Well, there's, a, there's basically four solid... I only had three written down because I kind of included this last one and the other, but there's four solid principles that are always true of all earthly authority, and we always need to remember. I'll just read them again. God is sovereign, first of all. He's the one who calls the shots. Second, God, therefore, as sovereign, is the one who gives authority to everybody on earth who happens to have authority, um, including our secular governments. Um, It's his idea, and he allows it to happen, and he actively makes it happen. Earthly authority, nevertheless, 
frequently is in rebellion against God. And that, as we know, has huge consequences for everybody. This is one of the big things about earthly authority, as an aside note. Um, when we're talking about secular governments, it is, in a certain sense, a bigger deal when they drop the ball. After all, if I, as a husband to my wife or father to my children, drop the ball, who gets hurt? Well, those five people. I only have a limited responsibility um, because I only have five people I'm uniquely responsible for in that way. It's bad. It's horrible. Don't get me wrong to drop the ball. But when I'm in charge of, say, 300 million people <laughs> and I drop the ball, the consequences are much more drastic. So point being, uh, it's a bad thing. It's, a, it's always a bad thing when we rebel against God. In terms of our earthly life and well-being, it's especially bad when the government, government drops the ball because their actions have more consequences has given them such a huge amount of responsibility and authority. Um, finally, fourth, earthly authority is accountable to God, no matter what they might think about themselves, and most governments don't believe this about themselves. It's still true. Whether you believe it or not, God is still God. He doesn't need you to make you his personal Lord and Savior before he starts ruling over you. <laughs> he will do it one way or another. And he does it. Now, one very important thing that we're going to have to talk about and what we should be able to get to today is what do we mean by authority? What does God authorize earthly kingdoms to do? To say that he gives them authority, does it mean whatever power they have and whatever power they exercise, that's what God intends for them? Or do we mean something more like God authorizes them to do specific kinds of things within a certain boundaries, and that's the limits they have for it. And what are those limits? Well, obviously, you'll see it's, we're going to talk about it just a second. God gives them specific authorities to do specific things and not other things. But what are those? We'll talk about that in just a minute, but I want to take a quick uh, detour here. Because there is a very big difference in the Bible about um, the kinds of government that it talks about. Sometimes Christians don't respect this difference enough. The Old Testament way that God ruled the world, um, or specifically exercised authority over his chosen people, is simply very different than the way he does it in the New Testament. What I mean is, it's easy for people to, to look at the Bible and say, King David was a good king, right? By and large. Better than, say, you know, some of these other guys. Um, what made him a good king in the Old Testament? What do you think made him a good king? He tried to adhere to the word of God. In the very direct and literal sense, he tried to follow the law of God personally and to impose it on the kingdom. That was his job as king. Yes, Personally maintain your own piety. Um, worship God the way that Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus lays out. Keep all of those commands for yourself, King David. And also, because you are the king, enforce it among the people. Use your might as king to stamp out idols. To forbid and punish bad worship. If somebody builds an idol on the hill, <laughs> go and tear it down. Um, by the same token, promote 
good worship. Make sure to encourage your people to go to the temple on all of these festival days, to take the Sabbath day off, to do all of these countless things in the Old Testament laws, because you are the king, your rule is for the sake of enforcing the law of God understood as what the Lord himself specified in the first five books of the Bible. That's a, that's, there's a word for that. It's called theocracy. Direct rule by God through the king. The king is the, vo- the representative of God who enacts his will. And there are Christians today who look at that as kind of the model for what Christian government is supposed to be. What all government is supposed to be. Every government in this mind is to be like those kings of Israel who often failed at their task. But the ideal was always take the law of God as laid down in the scriptures and enforce it throughout the land. Somebody want to read, just to uh, drive this point home, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, where God in the book, uh, in, the command, in the Deuteronomy, lays out more or less what I've been saying about the expectations for the king. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set up or set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself a scroll, a copy of this law taken from that of priests who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere (coughs) the Lord his God, and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his brothers, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign for a long time over his kingdom in Israel. All right. Now there's some pretty interesting things there. Uh, first of all, God says, King, when you get raised up, here's what he has to do. First of all, he has to keep his own ego in check. He is not to look to himself as the ruler of the people. He's to look to me as the ruler of the people. And therefore, he's not to look, he's going to trust in me. He's not to supposed to sit there and try to get huge armies and huge treasury as though that is what's going to secure his rule. Because those things are not what secures your rule. I, the Lord your God, am the one who secures your rule. Don't think of yourself as better than other people just because you're the king. You have a job, but that's what it is. A job that I have given you. Be humble. And then the big one, keep a scroll of the law. Study it all the time. Keep it yourself and rule by it. And that is how you will have a prosperous kingdom, because I, the Lord your God, will bless you. Pretty remarkable rules. I don't know too many uh, politicians who would ever think like this. And I suppose you might say that's both good and bad. 
bad in the sense that they forget that this teaches basically this idea here. <laughs> that God is the one who raises you up. God is the one who gives you authority. Live within those authorities. Always trust in God for your authority. That's a good lesson. But a bad, it's a good thing, rather, that not too many people think exactly in those terms. is because the kingdom of Israel is no more. That is to say, the time where God united the church and the state so closely is over. Israel was God's chosen people in the Old Testament to prepare the way for the Messiah. The uh, life of Israel, as the people who worshipped God rightly and trusted in God, as a precursor of the church, and who was ruled over by a king who tried to enforce this, and therefore uh, kind of pointed forward to the kind of kingdom that Jesus would rule, where he would bring people to live as God's people, it was all anticipatory. And the New Testament very directly talks in ways that make that Old Testament way um, no longer the way, the ideal for every government. It's, it's important just as a kind of an intersection. This is one of the reasons Jesus had such a hard time of it when he came into the world, by the way. He was born, and people kept saying, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one to wait for? Why? Because they've had this huge string of horrible earthly governments that never even came close to living up to the Old Testament ideal. And they looked at Jesus and said, if you're the Messiah, the anointed one, the king who's going to rule over God's people, then we're looking forward to the day where you live up to the Old Testament ideal. That you will sit on King David's throne, you will kick out the pagans, you will establish justice in the land, and enforce the Mosaic Covenant on us. In fact, that's what people were worried about with Jesus. The people who hated him, the Pharisees and things, were partly worried he's going to start a rebellion against Rome. <laughs> and it's going to fail, and we're all going to get wiped out. He was executed as a political rebel. He claims to be the king of the Jews. <laughs> and in fact, he even had radical political zealots among his disciples, Simon the Zealot. The zealots were the group that wanted to violently overthrow Rome. That was their whole thing. And they fell in with Jesus. You can only imagine part of the reason was they saw him as a Messiah, therefore somebody who would make their political dreams come true. Jesus had to do a lot of work to disabuse them of this Old Testament ideal and help them see the Old Testament in its proper place as a prefiguration of the thing to come, not as the ideal to always strive for. Um, somebody want to read, um, well, actually, let's, uh, let me do it this way. Let's switch to some New Testament principles here. These are some general principles here, but now we're going to talk specifically about New Testament principles for um, how... King Jesus rules. First of all, um, let's somebody pick uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 for me. And I need somebody to read John 19, 10 through 11. And then somebody else, if they could read John 18, pick, go to John 18, 33 through 37. And I'll just throw out one more. Somebody, Romans 14, verse 17. All right, somebody want to read Matthew 28 for me there. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
All right. Uh, how much authority has been given to Jesus there? All authority in heaven and on earth. Sounds a whole lot like our first principle up here, that God is ultimately the sovereign one. Now, Jesus is ascribed here to be the one who is ruling over all things. Just to drive that point home, somebody want to read that uh, John 19, 10 through 11, whoever looked that one up? Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have had no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Okay, so um, Pilate's standing there, he's saying, I'm in charge of you, buddy. You, you better start playing ball because I can kill you or keep you alive. And what's Jesus' response, more or less? Jesus has the power. Right. You don't have the power you think you have. The power that you do have it came from above. Um, Jesus asserts blandly, straightforwardly, that it's God himself, the Son of God, who has all of this authority. Um, so there's our first one. Jesus is king over all things on heaven and on earth. Just like we said about God being sovereign, Jesus is the one who gives authority and takes authority. He is the one who rules over all peoples, all nations, all kingdoms. And therefore, we could also apply pretty much all of these other things up here to Jesus directly. That Jesus is the one who raises up earthly authority. That, Je that earthly authority frequently is written rebellion against Jesus. And that earthly authority is accountable to Jesus. But there is something, there's some very big qualifications here. Um, and the way that Jesus and the New Testament talks Jesus doesn't rule the world in one simple theocratic way. That is to say where God says, I, Jesus says, I am King Jesus. Now you, President of Russia, are my appointed servant. You will rule according to my word perfectly. You, President of America, so on and so forth. Um, he rules in two very different ways, not in the way of the Old Testament's kingdom of Israel, which had King David, who is both um, political ruler and spiritual enforcer. Here's what Jesus says about his kingdom. So, um, so that uh, it's first of all, there's you might say that there's two ways Jesus rules this world, um, and I'll just put that out right away. Two very different ways. I'll actually put two different kinds of authority Jesus gives or uses. Let's read about the first kind here. Some whoever looked up John eighteen thirty three through thirty seven. Jesus first assert there about his kingdom? Not of this world. 
Right. It's a very different kind of kingdom than how the world kingdoms of the world runs. He even makes a very big distinction. If it were a kingdom like the worldly kingdoms, I'd have followers who were fighting, would be fighting to set me free. But it's not like those kingdoms. Well, somebody want to start reading Romans 14, 17, so we can get an idea of what this kingdom is like. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteous peace and the joy, of, and joy in the Holy Spirit. All right, so this kingdom of, this one kingdom we can call, I guess, the kingdom of heaven, just to distinguish it from the other kind of kingdom, what we'll call the kingdom of the world or of the earth, uh, we can also call it spiritual authority. It's just a different kind of authority. And right there um, in Romans 14, I mean, there's lots of other places we could go to do this, but in 1417, Romans gives a nice summary of what this kingdom is all about. Um, you might say, um, what kinds of means it uses, God uses to rule in this realm. What kinds of, what the scope of this kingdom is. That is how far its borders are, so to speak. And then what its ultimate purpose is. Um, in Romans 14 there, he says that it is a matter of um, peace with the Lord, righteousness, and so forth. Just to kind of jump, dovetail that into a lot of other verses that we know. You might say that the Therefore, this kingdom of heaven, which is a spiritual kingdom, goes by means of God's word, of his sacraments, the means he uses to bring peace with the Lord. Because after all, how do we get peace with God? If, that, if the kingdom of heaven is all about peace with God, which is what Paul says, how do we get peace with God? Romans 5 lays out through the blood of Christ, through his death. How does that get applied to us? Well, Romans again, 10, 17, says, um, faith comes by hearing. And a little bit before that says, whoever believes in his heart that Jesus is Lord and confesses with his lips that he is the Son of God um, will be saved. I think I misquoted that slightly. But the big point is there. Um, it's your faith that makes you part of Christ's kingdom, one who Christ has died for. And how does that come about? Paul says, by hearing the message of Christ, the gospel that he has died to forgive sinners. So the word and sacraments, the gospel, the Holy Spirit, that is how God works this kingdom and brings it to bear and rules the kingdom. By speaking the word of the Lord, Christians are ruled by God. You hear the word of the Lord, which says, um, you're a sinner, repent and be forgiven. And suddenly you believe and you're forgiven and you trust God. And now you assent to his authority. You become his people. The scope, as we might say, that is who is ruled over, are believers. This is not a kingdom that embraces the whole world. Not everybody is part of the kingdom of heaven. Those who don't have peace with God are not part of it. That is to say, all unbelievers are outside of the kingdom. Now, again, we'll qualify that right now by saying God doesn't want it to stay that way. He wants us to go and bring them in. But that's where it is. Um, and then there's the purpose of this kingdom is, as Paul says right there, peace with God. If we wanted to put it in nice uh, summary terms, Lutheran terms for uh, summarizing everything that Paul says about it. Justification, that is, we get forgiven and righteous before God. Sanctification, we uh, 
are made holy and put uh, closer to his will as we look, anticipate living in his presence forever and ultimately um, eternal life with God. Those are the purposes of the kingdom of heaven. That's the purpose of spiritual authority. That is the authority that uh, Christ uses to rule his believers, or, and you might say that is the authority and scope of the church's power. The church being the people of God, we are the people who are ruled by word and sacraments and the Holy Ghost. We are composed of believers, and our purpose is justification, sanctification, and eternal life with God. That's the church's place in the world. It's the best place in the world, because this is the kingdom that will last forever. By the way, all other kingdoms, America included, will crumble to dust, just like every other kingdom ever has. But the church will go on. God's chosen people who hope in Christ and the Messiah have endured ever since the foundation of the world. And it will continue until this world ends, and then eternally thereafter. We're running low on time, but I really want to get to this last point because this is what really will set the stage between this one and the other one. Uh, somebody want to read Romans 13, 1 through 7 for me. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities have, that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. If you, if, but if you do wrong, be afraid, and he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. There is also why... This is also why you pay taxes for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. All right. Um, Paul says a lot of really important things there that we will revisit as time goes on, but just to very quick summarize them so that we can get to there. Um, first of all, all earthly authority is established by God. Jesus, when he's talking to Pontius Pilate, doesn't say, you have no authority over me. He says, what authority you have over me has been given to you from above. You wouldn't have any, but you do, because God gave it to you. So King Jesus is asserting there, as Paul bears out, that he is king also of all these other, king, all the political kingdoms of the earth, that they have their authority from him. And Romans 13, as we look carefully at it, even specifies the means, the scope, and the purpose. It says um, that uh, the scope, for, or the means, first of all, he says, he does not bear the sword in vain. That is, he punishes evildoers and rewards good-doers. For, the force of governing authorities in this world, or of secular authority, is the authority to compel good behavior and punish bad behavior, to enact laws and to force people to follow those laws. We'll talk a little bit more later next time about what we're talking about when we say laws. The scope of them, obvious, that one's pretty obvious, it's not spelled out in Romans, but it's whoever is under their authority. Um, if I'm a citizen of America, I am under the authority of the American government. Um, but almost everyone in the planet is under the authority of some kind of secular authority. Whereas the church is limited in scope, it only has believers, everyone falls under some kind of secular authority. 
And uh, I should also say this is about um, earthly life. It's a matter of behavior in this world. Um, and its purpose is already spelled out there. I've mentioned it once, but I'll just say it again. Promote good behavior. Good punish. This is not a means to get you to eternal life when we're saying this, by the way. This is about making sure people live in accord with, um, as we'll anticipate next time, the second table of the law. So that there's a relative amount of order and force that sin and evil doesn't just run rampant. And that relatively decent behavior towards each other happens. Why does God establish this? Well, partly because this world is full of sinners. And even though government itself is composed of sinners... God has, in his wisdom, raised up authorities to um, manage the sinfulness of people in the way it affects our relationships with each other so that it doesn't get out of hand. After all, if there was no, we might say the government is evil. Imagine if we had no government, no police, no uh, speed limits, no one to build the roads for that matter, but uh, getting past that. How would, why wouldn't I just kill Bill the second he annoyed me? If I thought I could get away with it, why not? <laughs> There's no law that says I can't. There's no one I can count on is going to come and punish me for doing it. There's no one who can tell me, stop, don't do that. I'm going to save Bill from you. Because there's no one to step in and exercise any of that limitation. So God raises up the government, gives them the sword, that is coercive force, to compel you to act at a certain level of civility and decency towards one another. Make sense? I'll have to wrap it up there, but if you have any questions or thoughts about that... Please go ahead and share. Next time, we're going to dive um, more into the confessions, which will really help us sort a lot of this specifics about, well, what does all that mean? And at an abstract level, that all makes sense. But first of all, um, how does it play out on the ground? And then how do we apply it to our current situation? Confessions will do a great deal to help us start moving that direction. So let's close with the Lord's prayer, or a prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, Help us to remember that all earthly authorities have been given by you, for there is no authority that falls outside of your will. We ask that you would help us as your church to live freely and fully in the grace and the gospel that you have given us, which sets us free to anticipate heavenly life. We pray that you would hold all earthly governments accountable as we live in citizens under them, that you might, through them, give us a measure of peace and quietness in this life, that we may use the daily bread you provide us to live good and God-pleasing lives. In your most holy name we pray. Amen.